This is the Horse Radio Network. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Business Women. You are listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we will focus on one equestrian businesswoman's story. Our guest is Erin Brown, and we will learn about her life growing up with horses, how she built her businesses, her mission, her goals, her role in expanding diversity and inclusion in the equestrian industry, and what it was like being part of a movie production. Erin Brown, affectionately known as the Concrete Cowgirl, began her riding career at the Fletcher Street Stables in 1990 and has competed on the Mid-Atlantic Circuit for nearly 30 years in both the hunt seat and stock seat riding disciplines. Erin is a graduate of W.B. Saul High School of Agricultural Sciences with a major in equine science. She has extensive experience managing stables and is a strong advocate for riding programs serving her local communities. Erin is the executive director of Philadelphia Urban Riding Academy, a nonprofit 501c3 established in partnership with the filmmakers of the Netflix film Concrete Cowboy to preserve the history and culture of the urban black cowboy. She is the owner of Concrete Horsemanship, which creates successful partnerships through a concrete understanding between horse and human. Erin is also an active representative on the U.S. Equestrian Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion External Thought Leaders Group and contributed to the development of the USCF DEI Action Plan. Hi, Erin. Thanks for joining us. It's so good to talk to you today. And we wanted to kind of get started with a little background on where you grew up and how you got started riding at Fletcher Street Stables. Well, I started riding at the Fletcher Street Stables in 1990. My dad was a local, he has a miscellaneous metals company that was in that Strawberry Mansion area. And a couple of the cowboys would take their trailers to him for minor repairs, stuff like that. So he brought us to the stable, my brother and I, to the stable one day day and that was history right there (laughs) how old were you i was six years old okay so like prime horse loving age (laughs) with my little ponies briar horses the whole nine Um, yeah bit by the bug (laughs) (laughs) can you tell us what the stable was like and what it was like learning about horses and riding there Back in that day, it was like a community, a big variety of people and cowboys and cowgirls from all over the city. It was a farm in a residential street. There was chickens and goats and sheep and horses and ponies. So I was just in heaven. I was linked up with a gentleman named Al, who I refer to as Al because he didn't want to be called Mr. Al because it made him feel old. So he's only Uncle Al. So Uncle Al and same for uh, a woman named Tweety. We called her Aunt Tweety. Was the ringleader, Mr. Wayne. They had, which is now defunct, Strawberry Mansion Equestrian Center, which was located on Fletcher Street. And then there were several other barns on the same street. So, but with Strawberry Mansion, Equestrian Center did on Fletcher Street was it gave inner city youth an opportunity to learn horsemanship and about horses and taking care of them and learning how to ride and competing and all of those great things like that I was in heaven. My little six-year-old worries, which you, whatever you could worry about as a six-year-old were now gone that I was at the stable. How did the nickname Concrete Cowgirl come about? Concrete Cowgirl. So it was kind of for a group of young ladies from the ages of 12 to 14. And I was managing one of on Fletcher Street. And I had this bright idea. I'm like, you know what? I want an all girls rodeo team from Philadelphia. And I'm like, what would I call them? And then I 
like the Cowgirls. Girls. And then it was kind of timely with beginning of the filming of the movie. It was maybe a couple years before that. So I, I called them the Concrete Cowgirls. My friend Eric, he had maybe eight or nine horses with these girls used to groom and they had their own halters. Everyone told me their favorite color. So I went to the auction and found halters, lead lines with their favorite color. So they would be able to identify their tech and grooming equipment and stuff like that. But it became... I told my friend Eric, I'm like, look, we need, if this is what we're going to do and if they're going to deal with your horses. So some other events went on and I told the young ladies, listen, we're working on this project. We will regroup when we're in a permanent location and where we can have everything to provide properly to you young ladies. And I also didn't feel comfortable with them coming to the barn. I would be at work and they're the only girls there. I'm not saying anything would happen, but in the back of my mind, there are young ladies around a whole bunch of men, and that was not <laughs> for me. Yeah, yeah so. some supervision. <laughs> and the men that you're talking about, are you referring to the urban black cowboys? Yes. Okay. And, and for people who don't know the story behind that, can you kind of explain who the urban black cowboys are? The Urban Black Cowboys, so I feel like I say this enough. Once upon a time, I want to say in the 30s, 40s, 30s, before produce and ice and milk and laundry were all delivered by horse and rider or horse and wagon, and that was operated out of Fletcher Street Stable. So before it became a real kind of the boarding barn, businesses were operated from there. Once modern vehicles really kind of took over the city, urban black cowboys kept horses for their own personal pleasures. And you would always see them riding through, I don't care what part of the city, but you would see them riding through the city of Philadelphia, maybe 20 plus, and then big parades of hundreds of them from all different parts of the city. So that is the urban black cowboy. And what makes it, Unique is because, like Fletcher Street and many of these backyard, what I call backyard stables, they are not your traditional horse stable. They are warehouses and abandoned warehouses and buildings and lots where over years we've converted into horse stables and makeshift stables, if you will. So that's the uniqueness of the urban black, one of the unique things of the urban black cowboy. Yeah. yeah. It's not really an organized group. It's just no. people that come together as a community. Yeah. Fletcher Street is one of the first stables for the Urban Black Cowboy and one of the last still standing. So Fletcher Street has become a melting pot like of different ingredients and seasonings from stables from all over the city that have lost their home due to redevelopment and gentrification. So Fletcher Street has always been there and people just, if there's a stall available, people just piled in. I think the last big merge or purge was 2003. There was a stable in this brewery town section of Philadelphia, a big one, was redeveloped and Everyone came to Fletcher Street, but Fletcher Street always opened their doors and you are welcome home. <laughs> That's so nice. So Aaron, after learning how to ride and learning about horses, where did your equestrian career head after that? And what was your job business before you took over running the Philadelphia Urban Riding Academy? Okay, so I want to say through high school, I went to Saw Agricultural High School, which is growing up, I always wanted to go to the farm school in Philadelphia. So I have a major in equine science. Never did I think horses would be my career. <laughs> so I was still competing and every all of those things after high school. And I was working as an office assistant for one of my father's companies. And one of the guys who owned one of the barns on Fletcher Street at the time, 
he asked me if I would come run the barn. I'm like, okay. And I wasn't really <laughs> sure responsibility that I was taking on. And it just hit me like, okay, Aaron, if you had a dream barn, what would you do? And it was kind of hard getting the respect of the older cowboys and gentlemen and stuff because it's little Aaron coming in here, cracking a whip and saying what you can and cannot do. (laughs) (laughs) So surprisingly it worked and I turned the barn inside out and made it like this gorgeous place and relationships did change with the guys. They then knew that this is okay. This is still little Aaron that we all grew up with. If we want to have our horses in this barn, this is what we must do. And this is how we must keep it. And all of those things. So I was still working at my father's company as an office secretary, or my title was quote unquote project administrator. It was fancy (laughs) paper. I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) but I did do HR stuff, payroll and taxes and all of that. So I did that for 15 years and while running a barn on Fletcher street, while also teaching at work to ride in Philadelphia. So for a while I was her lead riding instructor and I also ran the program, the work to ride program for the new participants. So they just came twice a week. So I was juggling all of these things, but it never felt like work because it's horses and it was easy and it came naturally. So I think I left work to ride in 2013 and I got the job at the Philadelphia police department and I, how you get like the city job, city benefits to do as far as taking care of horses. Like you gotta be kidding me. Okay. You're paying (laughs) this much to clean stalls. You got to be kidding. (laughs) So I was there and I was still teaching. I was still, I was there overnight. So I was on third shift, but there's nothing to do on third shift, but take a long nap (laughs) (laughs) after your work is done. So then I would get up during the day, then I would go to my dad's and then I would do whatever I had to do on Fletcher Street. And then I was teaching in the afternoon and then I would take a power nap before work. And then I would go to work at 11 to 7. Wow. Wow. So I did that for some time and then I stopped working for my dad. And then I stopped over at work to ride. I started to slow down. I'm like, okay, wow, I could breathe. And I just stayed with the police department. And I think I left Fletcher Street too. Yeah, I did. And then I was asked to come back to Fletcher Street. And the guy who owned the barn said, Aaron, listen, I really need your help. I need you to get this place back in order. Do your thing. And I'm like, "Mm, didn't know if I wanted to do it because times have changed. Generations have changed. And I put my heart into it the first go around. And so I left for a few years and came back and I'm like, oh my God, what'd you guys do to the place? Like, <laughs> it doesn't seem anymore. I tried my best at it again. And that's when Eric Miller, that's when he and I developed, which started off as a business relationship to a friend relationship. I mean, he had a few horses in the barn. I, I knew of him when I was younger, but he at his crowd and I wasn't allowed to intermingle none of the kids that were a part of SMEC. We had to stay behind that gate and behind that gate only. And that's where we were supervised and stuff like that. So I started doing hay runs for him and my dad got me this new trailer for my birthday. And so I was using it to get hay. And then I would start picking up horses from the auction. I'm like, Oh my God, this is like, a real hustle. It was like Mm -hmm. extra money that I had on top of my regular paycheck. And I started riding his horses and doing exercise rides and training rides. And he had a horse that he was trying to get me to buy for myself. And I'm just like, "Mm, thanks, but I sell her for you. Put her a few times and I sold her. And he asked, well, he asked me, how much do you think you can get for this horse? And I threw the number out there. He said, no, you can't. 
So I did it and I got (laughs) (laughs) And so that started me, we started flipping horses and we became like really good friends. He was almost like a brother. I do have a brother, but he was closer than my biological brother because we had this horse relationship and he's about a good 12 years older than I am. So he'd always had the brotherly advice and he always had my best interest at heart. So he told me about filming this movie, Concrete Cowboy. And I'm like, yeah, I, my 30 something years on Fletcher street, I've seen so many people come through, tell their story and hit it. And you never hear from again. Never was it ever something as big as Concrete Cowboy or the filming of this movie. So, of course, I didn't really believe it. And then he started talking about Idris Elba. And I'm like, oh, you're right. And then (laughs) FaceTime call with Idris and um, Lee Daniels. I'm like, oh, God, okay, sure. And he also brought that vision to me about Pura. And Mm -hmm. He he was telling people maybe two years before filming that everyone needs to get together because Fletcher Street is not going to be here any longer. And this is something that we've been hearing since back in the 90s. I'm sure they've heard it before. This mm-hmm. is the year the barn is going to go. This is the year. It's always been this is the year. No, it's not happening. Well, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> And he brought this vision of Philadelphia Urban Riding Academy, and it would serve this purpose, not only preserve this history, but preserve it would serve this purpose of what Fletcher Street and the many other stables before were for us to a newer generation and mm-hmm. how it kept us safe and how it kept us off of the streets and out of doing bad things. So that's how... Philadelphia Urban Riding Academy came into play with all of it seems like all the experiences and the different places you worked and like your dad's business and the contacts that you probably made in the police department all gave you such a unique perspective in order to make Pura successful and and able to happen. Did you find that having all of those different job experiences and working lots of different places helped you? Honestly, I'm going to be 100% honest. I have not thought about it just until now, until you were saying it. Thinking about all of these administrative side of Pura and taxes and payroll and right. all of those things that I've and it's basically prepared me for this. So now that I'm thinking about it, that's absolutely so true. <laughs> and did you see that there was a need to appear to be a nonprofit? Is there a reason why you chose to be a nonprofit over just running it as a regular business? It is a nonprofit for profit. When I think about myself and my peers and those before and after me, Growing up on Fletcher Street, this is not something we had to pay for, nor could we afford it. To keep that same kind of unique recreation alive in the city, our kids, our youth, they need something. And every kid does not want to play basketball. Every kid does not want to play football. Some kids want to ride horses. And if we can keep that part of it free, how it was for us, then that is perfect because it's and it's expensive sport it's an expensive sport and hobby and my mm-hmm. mom didn't I was competing every weekend my whole life up and down the mid-atlantic so my mom did not have the money to to fund this but uncle al and aunt Tweety and pop pop they made it happen wow. even down mm-hmm. close so yes Competing is a privilege outside of horses and horsemanship and learning how to ride itself. But in order to keep that going, I had to maintain a passing average in school. And that's what I did. Maintained a barely passing average in school. (laughs) Oh, wow. What kind of challenges do you think that Pura faces right now? Our biggest challenge, and I wouldn't even say it 
is a challenge. What is? Well, no, it's not. <laughs> it's just fundraising for this new facility. We have the facility. The architect is finalizing drawings as we speak, I'm sure. So it's just turning this once was a bocce court, which was, it's a city building, but it's an bocce court. It's like just empty. It looks like bowling in the sand. Like, <laughs> so it's an open space. So yeah. converting this stone building into a barn, it's, it's not like you have to tear too much down. So, right. and it's in the perfect location. It's in the Cobbs Creek section of Philadelphia. Horses have not been in that section for over 30 years. Oh. So we were servicing a new, another side of the city again, because there are, I think there needs to be multiple programs like Pura all over the city. So the more the merrier. Our biggest challenge is just the fundraising. We have the best sponsors, the, the best team, amazing partnerships. It's just the fundraising to turn this place into a barn. And I think it is going to be, I don't think I know it is going to be one of the most epic riding academies in this city. It is going to be like no other. That's amazing. So how do you think that people can support your cause? What's the best thing that they can do? I know everyone does not have the means to donate financially, but spreading the word to about who we are, what our mission is, what we're trying to accomplish, that what I've learned through this whole journey is that really goes a long way. Because one mm-hmm. person tells one person that it's like, not a carrier pigeon. It's like a, a bee pollinating all over. So the more you get out about Pura and who we are, it'll get to the right people. And it's not saying that the messengers aren't the right people, but they're bringing more right people on board and that yeah. can support us. So in, in what Pura does now, what level of riders do you work with there? Is it from very beginner all the way up to people still competing? What's the program like? We've kind of taken a break because of the relocation. So mm-hmm. I think after filming the movie, Pura had no horses. I donated my personal horses to Pura to build this kind of thing. And my friend, Eric, he was killed maybe a month before filming. Oh, wow. Oh, my so, God. He had seven horses and he left four kids behind. And I knew he didn't have any life insurance. So, you know, the filmmakers asked if we could keep the horses around for filming. And I developed a really close relationship with Eric's sister. And she wanted to give the money to sell all the horses and divide it up between the kids. Mm. So I, that's what I did. I, sold them all <laughs> top dollar within with the exception of one which was his personal horse that he always rode and that's chuck so he's still around and he's an older guy he's i think 21 now so the rest of pure's horses were mine that i donated and missy clark of north run she bought the palomino quarter horse so again Everyone was boarded all over the city, all over the state, rather. And I kept the two young ones that were showing close by. So Javon, he's the young, well, not the youngest. His brother Liam is three. Javon is nine, but he's been showing Pretty Boy on the quarter horse circuit as Halter. So okay. and this is I started on Fletcher Street showing Halter. Yeah. We are getting ready to relocate the whole entire herd next week. Actually, I found a barn that's not too far. So everyone can be under one roof and it's not me driving to this barn, that barn, all over the place because it's driving me insane. They'll be under one roof until it's time to come home. Our title sponsor for this episode is Intentional Finance LLC and Ann Schubert. 
and talks about the importance of financial planning, understanding your finances, business retirement plans, and more. She can help you with all of these things in your business, which obviously we know is so important. And so many people don't know how to do it, or they don't know where to start, or they don't know how to organize their finances into something that will help make their business profitable. So I think it's a really important topic for us to be talking about. Yeah, I'm very excited to have Anne on as a guest in the future and get to hear her insight into the equestrian business and what you can do with your finances. Yeah, she's super smart. Like she used to have a completely different role outside of finance. So I'm sure we'll talk to her about that. And she also rides as an amateur dressage rider. So she knows the horses and the industry and can really help people with getting their finances organized and working the best way possible for your business. Yeah, I think that's so important to be able to cross over from the corporate world into the horse industry and bring that information to us. Yep. So thank you to our title sponsor. And you said you have a nine-year-old that is working with horses in halter classes and through your career of teaching, what's it like to introduce kids to horses for the first time? Seeing their reaction is something priceless. It really weighs on me like kids that have, they may have ADHD or autism and to see how they react with a horse and how Mm -hmm. a horse is their medication. Javon is, (laughs) I love, love him to death. But he is ADHD, ABC, DEFG, the whole alphabet. <laughs> and when he's around pretty boy, he's paying attention. He's assertive. He's alert. He's asking one million questions. I'd rather him ask those questions and talk my head off than to say nothing. And mm-hmm. I told his grandmother, I'm like, listen, don't give him his medication. Not while he's coming to the barn. He doesn't need it because Mm -hmm. he's focusing, which he has a problem with doing in school and everywhere else. He has the attention span of a fruit fly. But Mm -hmm. when he's with the horses, he's grounded. So I love seeing that kind of relationship and connection. I also love seeing like the bad behind kids that have, that's been in like juvenile places and they're so big, bad and tough, but when they get in front of a horse, it humbles them Hmm. and they then learn this responsibility and how to be this humble individual and how to have respect and a relationship with a 900 pound animal. Yeah. That's really special. Mm Mm-hmm. So why do you think it's so important to preserve the urban equestrian experience? Is it for the kids? It's for the kids. It's for the adults. It's for the city. I mean, again, you would always see the urban black cowboys riding through just residential neighborhoods, just riding through the park or just riding through the streets. I remember sitting on my great aunt's porch and seeing the cowboys ride by and me like, number one, I wanted to be riding with them. And number two, I would be trying to figure out what stable they were from because there were so many. And that makes a kid's day that is sitting outside and you see horses like, and you get a ride or just seeing them was enough. And Everyone in the city of Philadelphia knows about the urban black cowboys and you would see them. But that number has gotten so small from hundreds to handfuls. And Philadelphia is like the violence here is out of this world. And a lot of it is because of lack of recreation. It's not adults. These are young people that are doing this and that are losing their lives to gun violence. So if they have something else to do, something else to be involved with like horses, and that is something that keeps them off the street. Even when I was growing up, I didn't grow up and around Fletcher street, but my friends did. And sometimes they wandered off with their neighborhood 
folks that they lived with and they got in trouble. When they got out of trouble, if they went to jail or something, they always come back to Fletcher Street. They've always come back to the barn. And a lot of times it's they snap out of it. Look, I'm not doing that no more. This is in their life becomes at this barn. And looking at Pura and being the executive director there, what aspect of actually running a business do you find most challenging? Currently, I am wearing all of the hats. So that Mm -hmm. is so tough. My day-to-day is kind of, I don't know how I do it, but it's the daily care of the horses because they're on self-care. And then I have to come home, sit on Zoom calls, create things and jot things down and financial stuff. And I can't, and once the new barn is done, I will have time to have a secretary or someone to do the administrative side. So I can be more hands-on. I'd rather be, whether it's with Pura or Concrete Horsemanship, that is where I want to spend majority of my day. So The administrative side is not fun. Three years ago, when this was just a conversation, when the filmmakers asked, so what are we going to do with Pura? Do you want to step up or we can figure it out later? And I'm like, I think Eric would come back and haunt me if I did not. Because I was one person that didn't know the vision and who was with him when he picked out this new location. So even back a month before filming, I'm sitting here like thinking about boarding contracts and stuff like that. And I was just telling my partner, Mike, this last night, I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? Like a boarding contract, there's like a business plan and there is so many other aspects that have to be done. You need a barn for a boarding contract, but that's where my brain was. I'm like, yeah, great that it's done and it's on my files to my computer but there's so many other things to do other than that. I had no clue of what to do. So Leslie from Work to Ride, she said, Aaron, you need a business plan. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? What should I do? And she said, she sent me this book, Business Plans for Dummies. And I'm like, so there's no audio book that goes along with this? Like, I have to read this? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to hire someone to do it for me. And I was just like asking all of my really smart friends. So do you want to do this business plan for me? How much would I cost? Whatever it's going to cost, I'll do it. And no one actually, they said they would, but it wasn't getting done. And which mean I meant I had to do it myself. I Googled a business plan template and I Googled everything that's supposed to be in a business plan. And I just started putting everything together and I'm glad no one did do it for me because I appreciate the journey so much more that I know that this seed is something that I planted from three years ago that has blossomed into what it is today. So I am so thankful and grateful for that part, but Pura and then branding the concrete cowgirl and then concrete horsemanship I am whooped. I'm ready for a secretary and administrative assistant. <laughs> Somebody that used to be what I was to handle this day to day executive world typing and emailing. I yeah. can't stand it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so hard to know when you've reached, well, mentally, when you've reached that point, but you don't know business wise if you've gotten to that point and how much do you invest in something like that, when you're just starting out, it's really hard to know when to take that leap and add people like that. Yeah. I have an amazing executive board, but it's okay. Executive board. You have this fancy title now, executive or whatever the heck you got to (laughs) do, but help. (laughs) Yeah. I would hear like, again, my friend, Mike, who's with me for all of these community events and stuff. He's been there since the beginning and he's telling me how tired he is and from work and stuff. I'm like, dude, I wake up at (laughs) 12 o'clock in the morning and I run to the barn, take care of horses, 
and all of their daily needs. Then I have to run home and look at emails, jump on Zoom calls, technology I cannot figure out. And <laughs> back to the barn, I still have to find some time to exercise horses, especially the ones that are showing. And yeah. back to my computer. So don't tell me about tired. This is what I'm glad you get to have fun, but I do not. <laughs> I think it's hard to when you're a horse person and your heart's really in the barn and you're used to doing all that physical stuff. That comes natural. But then when you sit down to the computer to type out stuff and get on Zoom calls, that's more exhausting. It is. It really is. Time flies in the barn. Emails and stuff like that. I cannot. I dread the notification button on my phone. iPhones have all these fancy calendars and reminders. I still have to use a sticky note because that's how I remember. It takes too much time to input it into a phone from for me anyway. It's just mm-hmm. different. But stick it on a sticky note and stick it on my laptop or my printer. I know it has to be done. I could check a strike through something. But how many sticky notes do you have on your computer right now? I don't have any today. Oh good. <laughs> I did a lot yesterday and I was like, I'm so proud of myself. I even got a nap in. <laughs> Well, I I don't think you're alone on the the executive board part because I'm on the board of a nonprofit and she struggles as well to get us to respond. I try to respond as often and quickly as I can, but I know she struggles with the rest of the board. So you are not alone in that. (laughs) Oh my God, it is so challenging. Like I just can't. I do have help, but it's not like the help that I want, but also no one can really do it but me because I'm in that executive director position. And it's just, I'm trying to do juggle a million things and it's tough, (laughs) but it's worth it. And so what business advice would you give someone in a similar role or situation like yours? Take your time, enjoy the process and Mm -hmm. that's it. It's an empty canvas, especially if you're building a business, you paint it how you want. It's yours. And you plant that seed where you want and you just watch it grow because I had no clue. And I remember talking to one of the filmmakers, Ricky, I'm like, what do I do? And he said, Aaron, pretend like it's already existing and work that way. And I think that is some of the best advice that he's given me. And we were once a business license, like on an envelope. And now here, voila, here we are. We still have a ways to go. But, and he told me nothing great happens overnight. And I'm like, no, we need this now. But it's true. When you put those hours and years in, it's built to last. And you're crossing all your T's, dotting all of your I's. So just enjoy the journey. And I do enjoy, no matter how stressful the day is, I enjoy looking back of anymore. This was an experience. So that is a part of the process to enjoy and watching it grow. And the Mm -hmm. fruit of all of the labor is like the best. Yeah. So even though you have a lot of hats that you wear, Already. (laughs) That's not enough. You also are part of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee for the USCF. So how did you become a part of that? I remember getting the phone call. Missy Clark, she, I was, I went to a gun violence rally last year and I had put these signs on my horse and she called me and she said, Hey, would you be interested in the diversity and equity and inclusion with USEF? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm riding a horse right now. <laughs> and I called her back when I got in the truck and she went more into detail. And I'm like, yeah, I would. And she set it up. I got the emails that which about the first meeting. And a few of my friends are also on that team. And I'm like, hey, you're here too. Okay. (laughs) So it was, that's that's exactly how it went. (laughs) So what kind of initiatives does the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee work on? There are 
quite a few other than the obvious, <laughs> but making sure that there is proper training from instructors, coaches, farms, and anything USEF related to be more diverse into how to handle certain situations and they're working on different grants. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to actually say, so that's why I'm stumbling. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I know they have not put a lot out yet, even mm-hmm. though there's a lot going on. So, oh, okay. yeah, let's sure. that. <laughs> yeah, to be announced, right? To be announced. <laughs> what challenges have you faced in the equine industry as a Black woman? <sighs> okay. Growing up, again, from Fletcher Street in Philadelphia and maybe a little outskirts of Philadelphia, I would always see friends from other stables that looked like me. It wasn't until I hit the mid-Atlantic circuit and started competing at a higher level where I did not see anyone that looked like me. I was embarrassed. I remember we went to Maryland for at a quarter horse stallion. He, well, he did everything. But during this time, we were a hunt. We were competing in hunters. He was a hunter more than anything else. And I remember asking Uncle Al, "I'm like, hey, can we park the trailer over there, like, so no one would see." this trailer that I'm getting off of that had spray paint and everything and graffiti all over. I didn't, I was embarrassed. And Mm -hmm. I remember because everyone had these fancy rigs and everything else. And we did not. And my clothes barely fit. And I had the full leather riding boots, like field boots. I didn't have the real fancy ones, but from a distance you couldn't tell. So I was good to go. Yeah. And he was like, no, we're not parking over there. I'm like, please, I beg it. And he, some, I went to register for my classes and he overheard someone ask me where I was from. And I said, Philadelphia. And they said, where at in Philadelphia? I'm like, shoot, like Philadelphia, isn't that great enough? Like, and I said, <laughs> I'm going <in> park. <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay. And he pulled me to the side and I knew he had something to say because he always had this look. And he said, why didn't you tell her where you were from? And which was from Fletcher Street. And I said, because I didn't. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. he told me, don't you ever be embarrassed where you were from. And he said, you have this horse that was born. And even though he is the son of impressive, but he came. Pre- his mother came pregnant when they bought him. You have this horse that was born in the middle of North Philadelphia, and you are coming out here competing against these forty and fifty thousand dollar horses, and you're winning on a horse that we <laughs> trained together as a baby. And I didn't have a schooling arena. We didn't have an arena. We had a sand lot. And once hunters was the direction I was sticking with hunters and jumpers, we didn't have jump standards like the barrel racing barrels. We would set those up all over the place and bricks on cinder blocks on top of them with a post and board and trees and tires. And he would go find brush and shrubs from anywhere and decorate these makeshift jumps. And you know, I do believe that is what gave my horse the confidence because he was more confident than I was because he's used to seeing like these foreign objects and four wheelers and dirt bikes and ambulances. And so he's, oh, this water jump, this is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have a water jump. We had a blue tarp. And as I got older, I would school in a football field, a high school football field. At nighttime, and the stadium lights will come on because they're like time censored or something. But I felt like I was in like this Olympic arena by myself. <laughs> That's amazing. My yes. Yeah, so <laughs> like, don't you ever be embarrassed about where you are from? And from that day forward, I can honestly say that I was not, even though I didn't see 
at that level, I didn't see anyone that didn't ride in the same car that looked like me. It, mm. It's true because people always wanted to buy my horse. I'm like, he's right. Like they, you know, would always ask if he's for sale. So something must be right. I was kind of shy. So I've always let riding be my voice and my communication because I too have had a tough childhood and I dealt with bullying and I didn't have any friends growing up. So if it was not for a horse, I don't know, I would probably be a mute somewhere because I, it really helped my communication and my development Hmm. where I wanted to step outside of the box and actually talk to people. But the people I did talk to, if they weren't in the house, they were at the barn. I felt like we all shared this common thing. And that is the love of a horse. No, it's really special. And I think the conversations are starting now and the U.S. Equestrian is working on initiatives. Do you think there are ways that the equine industry can become more diverse and inclusive? I think... A lot of it is a financial thing and finances don't just, they're not specific to one race, but you, it's really expensive, especially competing on a professional circuit. It is very expensive. So I would, I do remember getting stares and looks and stuff like that. And It's kind of hard to teach people how to be a decent human being. Like, it's like, why are we having this conversation? Like, how do I, why do I have to teach you how to treat you with respect, regardless of your race, gender, sexual orientation? It's just about being a nice person. And I do, it is more common to see people of different races and sexual orientations now on the show. This it was much different in the nineties for sure. Um, before, way before then it was completely different. So it's more common now. It's just, we are giving a life class on how to treat people. This is something your parents should have done. And this is something your parents' parents should have done for them. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just a sport. It's a passion. It's a hobby. It's a lifestyle. Treat people nice. Doesn't it make you feel good? Be nice. Kindness is free. So I just, (laughs) I don't know, like being mean or discriminatory, that requires too much energy. And then you have to really think of what are you upset for? Because Mm -hmm. I look different than you. So we're doing the same thing. And we have the same love and passion. Yeah. Let's let the horses bring us together. Yeah. So You've referenced the Concrete Cowboy movie a couple of times throughout us talking. And I know Jen and I both have watched the movie and I thought it was really great, interesting. I really enjoyed watching it to give me a better perspective. So can you kind of tell us about working on the movie and what it was like and how the horses reacted? So filming, again, Eric, or he was who the filmmakers worked closely with to get this story, to capture this vision and to tell this story. And I met them a few times through him. But I remember when I got the call that he got killed, I was headed to work. It was 11 o'clock. And Mike, who he called to tell me, so I'm like, crap. I called, I sent Ricky an, a message on Instagram and I said, well, you need to call me. And he called me and I told him what happened. And I never heard like a grown man cry like so much because it was, that was, he, they have all developed a, a close relationship with E. Mm-hmm. And so then it's whatever the family needs, we'll make sure it gets done. And then he's, well, what about this movie? This is like a month away. And I said, listen, (laughs) I'm no Eric Miller. He had this presence that can command the whole city. I don't Mm -hmm. have that, but I will help the best I can. So, and it was important to E that everyone from the Fletcher street community 
was involved in some way, shape, or form. If they weren't an extra, they were working some way to this is something that's ours to be proud of, that it's a story. So I already knew that had to go on. And I told Ricky and Dan, said, listen, before you start hiring outside the box, (laughs) let everyone, if you want this movie to go accordingly, (laughs) you use Fletcher Street first. And you can start grabbing from elsewhere. And that's what they did. So I was, I worked as a consultant and an extra. And I was also a stunt double for Cole's mom and for Nessie, who was Lorraine Toussaint. So it was, yeah, I took a leave of absence from work for (laughs) like 30 days. (laughs) And it was just this awesome experience. We were supposed to use our personal horses. So Ricky was like, can you get a horse in the house? I'm like, sure. One of my <laughs> horses did like a derby party. And this guy was like, can you bring the horse in the house? I'm like, you want him to walk across this carpet on this, over this marble floor. You want a horse in your house. And he said, <laughs> think that's a great idea like that the caterer in the house and the piano and he just takes the horse from me and walks into the house and I figured he would be okay he's a city horse he has to be and Mm -hmm. everybody's like there's a horse in the house I still have the video and (laughs) (laughs) and so Ricky's like can you get a horse in the house and I said yeah so there's like the scene where the horse is in the house and he said, can you stand up on a horse? And I said, ah, uh, get back to you on that. And so I, which made me, I taught cowboy how to bow. And then I stood up on him after, you know, he, I had him bow and I jumped up on him and then I stood up and I'm like, okay, yeah, he can do it. But it became a problem with the insurance from the cast. Mm-hmm. So we had to bring in professional stunt horses. So any of the uh-huh. horses you've seen and like the scenery in the background those are actual Fletcher Street horses majority of them were ease horses and then there's the professional stunt horses that were amazing so I'm like wow okay and I'm sitting here tumbling in my brain okay maybe you could do this too and adding another <laughs> business like professional stunt horses right <laughs> because what's all these tricks this <laughs> is easy yeah. So it was it was filming was like 27 days or something. It yeah. was an amazing experience. I don't think I slept. I don't think any of us slept, but we weren't tired because if you're ever on a movie set, it's like this amazing food that's brought around all day long. <laughs> and I love to eat. So I'm like, okay, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? And then you get snacks in between and a snack. It was just <laughs> I I'm I have to say that the f- most people would think that meeting the cast and hanging out with them all day was their favorite part. I was looking forward to next day's menu. Like, <laughs> so many different things. You know, it, it just became, after the first day of filming, it became the norm where I get my little walkie-talkie and my headphones and I get to sit under the producer's tent and listen and watch from the producer's screen. No worries. That's just Lee Daniels sitting next to me. We're friends like that <laughs> in my head. It was an awesome experience. So we watched it on Netflix. Is there another place that we can find it? I think it's still Netflix is the only place that it is available now. We went to the, a few of us went to the film company maybe after I want to say October of last year after they were done they put it together pretty quickly and we went to the film company and watched it on the big screen and I just remember crying like (sighs) because I knew wow this is E's story and it's here and he's not during filming there a couple times I'm like wow he's like here and Ricky he's such a humble and genuine caring guy all he would say is I, I want to make sure we're telling E's story the right way and I'm like yeah I don't think it could have been done any better so mm-hmm. but yeah I think uh, Netflix is still the only place that it's available now 
I haven't yeah. seen the movie like a million times before it came out. And so then when it did come out, my family and everyone wanted to watch it with me. I'm like, no, please, no. I cannot watch this film. <laughs> I hadn't seen it a hundred times. And so Ricky's like, well, how do you think I felt? I saw it a million times. And right. because a lot of scenes did not make the actual movie. So there was so much more to that film that didn't make the cut. But it would have ended yeah. up being a three-hour film. Right. I was surprised at the end when they're rolling the credits and the woman who played Isha and the man who played Paris were actual Fletcher Street riders, right? Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. I was like, holy cow, they were so good. Like I never would have thought they weren't professional actors. Well, the funny part with Isha, her character, Ricky put out this, PSA or something where he's looking for this character to play this girl. And I'm like, okay, who do I know? Who do I know? So there's this, I call her my little sister. Her name is Aaliyah Roberts. She's in Colorado, I want to say, but she's pretty big. She's stamping this world in the uh, barrel horse circuit. And I had her, I sent her a few lines from the script and I told her, you do this script. And I already told Ricky, I'm like, the girl can ride. So that was the thing. He had to ride and be a black. And he was still undecided. And I'm like, oh my God, Mercedes. Okay. She's local. And she, oh no, she asked me if it was too late. And I said, yeah, I think we're going with this girl. So she sent her rehearsal to me anyway. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I I sent it to Ricky. And he said, I need to see her tomorrow morning. (laughs) And that great or that much of a natural. And I knew she couldn't put on a show because she was also one of my orders on Fletcher Street. So when it was time for, she always had a story of why she could not make this deadline or why this wasn't <laughs> and I'm just like I roll and I've you know figured her out and then we worked at Mount of Patrol we, together we got hired together and I would see her like walking down the driveway coming to work all smiling and bopping and stuff and then we would be in the locker room and it's just she's got these tears coming down her face and I'm like Okay, what just happened? Oh, you're getting out of work. Got it. Wink, wink. (laughs) I knew that she was like amazing for that part. So it was kind of like a juggle. You had this natural actor and then you have this Aaliyah who's like this bad A rider. So, Mm -hmm. but I think the acting, Mercedes ended up, or Isha ended up having a stunt double anyway. So... It didn't really matter. She just had to act. (laughs) Yeah. That's so cool that they really incorporated people from Fletcher Street into the movie. Yeah. I enjoyed that part at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And Paris, he was pretty good too. Watching it. I mean, I knew his lines before he did, but I'm like, I'm saying, I'm like, no, that's not what you're supposed to say. Like, (laughs) I'm listening to it from like the headphones, like you guys. Well, I think we will go on to our rapid fire questions, which are ones that we ask every guest at the end of each episode. And Connor, you want to do the first one? Yeah. So what is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? Always go with your gut. I like that. And what is the best habit that keeps you motivated personally? Looking for making my dream a reality. Keeping my eye on the prize, kind of. Yeah. Keeping the goals. Yes. (laughs) And what's your favorite horse movie? Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to say Miracle of the White Stallions. Oh, I thought it was going to be Concrete Cowboy. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, my favorite one, my absolute favorite one is not out yet, but it will be Concrete Cowgirl. Uh (laughs) It will be the Miracle of the White Stallion. Okay. Great. Awesome. So fun to talk with you, 
today, Aaron, and we really enjoyed you know hearing your story and how you handle your business and everything that you've gone through and accomplished. And we hope that everyone who listens gains something from it as well. Thank you. It was a pleasure and so much fun speaking with you ladies. Yeah, same yeah. here. Thanks so much. You're working hard, running your business, taking care of your family, both two-legged and four-legged. Who has time to worry about planning for your financial future? I do. I help busy women professionals and small business owners make sure their money is working as hard as they are to build a strong financial foundation for whatever the future brings. I'm Ann Schubert, horse owner, small business owner, and certified financial planner professional. Let's talk about how I can help you have confidence your money is working to get you where you want to go. I love talking to Erin and hearing her story and seeing how she came from riding as a kid and got all of these different experiences and had the business admin experience through her dad's company to being the executive director at Pura. It was really cool to hear about her journey. Yeah, I really feel like I identify with her with wearing so many hats and doing so many different jobs. I feel like I've done that most of my life, always trying to hustle. <laughs> yeah, she definitely does that. She said at one point she was basically working three jobs and one of them was a night shift. I can't imagine having to balance all of that, but I think it's led her to a place now where she's doing something she loves. And But again, she's in a place where She's in one job, but she's doing everything herself too. So it's interesting to consider and talk about how you get to that point and how do you make the jump to bring on people to help you. She said she doesn't like doing the admin side of things. She wants to be in the barn and be teaching. And I think it's hard to know when to make that leap and when to invest in that and hope that it's going to provide returns. Yeah. I feel like when you're sometimes when you're doing all of those jobs, it's important that you're doing them, but you have to figure out a way to take the next step in order to back yourself out of that. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I think you burn yourself out. And I understand when I understand that you're trying to maybe save money or you feel some responsibility to it all. But I I do think that's a hard position to be in. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, it's hard to delegate and give responsibilities away when you've been doing it for so long yourself. It was inspiring to hear what she's accomplished and what she continues to do for her community. And we talked afterwards about coming to visit and seeing the program. So I'd love to make that happen sometime soon. Yeah, I definitely want to go see it. It's very interesting. And the movie kind of piqued my interest even more. For sure. I really had no idea of what Fletcher Street Stables and the Urban Black Cowboys were about. So it was really eye-opening to me to see their story. Yeah, and I think more people really should watch the movie and kind of get an understanding about it. I think it gives you just such a different perspective. Yeah. I I meant to say to her, I think my favorite part of the movie was just like an opening shot before a scene and it was the grass field that the horses were in and there was like a bay horse rolling on his back and the horses just were like munching on grass and then the whole city skyline is behind them. I just thought it was such a cool part of the movie to show these horses enjoying themselves there. Yeah, I never thought about it, about horses in the city like that. Me either. I was quite perplexed by it honestly (laughs) and there was one part at towards the end of the movie too that I thought kind of brought the whole movie together and I think I had sent you like a message about it that it's heartbreaking to see stables like that being demolished and that they're so resilient because they're like we're gonna ride on yeah they're still gonna find a way to keep their heritage and their love of horses going so I definitely recommend putting Concrete Cowboy on your Netflix queue. Yep, me too. (laughs) Find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. 
Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. You can find out more about Equestrian Businesswomen at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now, go support Pura and watch Concrete Cowboy. <laughs>